Hey everyone, welcome to this week's question show, Shooting Inside the House again. Uh, we have a weather system here. We call it January when uh, we never seem to get like a late spring, early summer, but apparently it's going to be better in a, another couple of days. So uh, now before I get into this week's question show, I am planning on starting another question show. Uh, but this one is just going to be going out and responding to the questions that I get from my weekly email newsletter. So uh, if you haven't already signed up to that, go to uh, universetoday.com newsletter and sign up. And I will have in Friday's newsletter, which hopefully will come out a day after you see this question show, instructions on how you can send questions for that question show. Two question shows. Anyway, I, it's an experiment. I will I'll figure it out. But I just I, there's so many questions and I want to answer them and I need more venues to do it. So that's the plan. All right. Universetoday.com slash quest no universetoday.com slash newsletter. All right, uh, let's get on to this week's questions. SJ. Hey Fraser, big fan of people dumbing down the facts for the masses. My question, we have LIGOs on different locations on Earth to get a better point of source of gravitational waves. Since we basically are confined to a 3D universe, would it be better to get our LIGOs 3D, like an arm going three kilometers down or up in the sky, or even go a step beyond and have Lisa as a sphere of detectors? Right, so the LIGO detector, there's two of them, they do have this disadvantage, which is they can't tell direction. So one is in Washington and one is Louisiana, I think. Um, apologize if I'm getting that wrong. Uh, but so the two detectors are, are thousands of kilometers apart. And so all they can know is whether the gravitational waves originate, originated from one hemisphere of the sky or the other. But when you add a third detector, such as the Virgo detector, which is in Europe, then you get a third dimension. Now you've got three detectors across the planet and they're able to tell quite precisely where those gravitational waves are coming from. And the Virgo detector was brought online and helped to detect the Kilinova event where you had those two neutron stars that collided into each other. And the cool thing about that actually is that the Virgo detector actually has a blind spot that it can't detect within. And so they detected the Kilinova from the LIGO observatory, but they didn't detect it from the Virgo observatory. And that told them that it had to be within the Virgo's blind spot. And so they scanned that area and that's how they found it. But for future detect detections, they're going to find, you know, Virgo, then the two LIGOs are going to make a detection that's going to give you a plot in three dimensions. As new instruments are brought online, there's one that's going to be happening in India. There's going to be space-based uh, gravitational wave detectors. They're just going to get more and more accurate over time. And also they'll be able to calibrate each other. So one satellite may detect a gravitational wave while maybe the Earth-based one didn't detect it or it fell within the noise of that detector and so that they know, oh, okay, that actually was a detection. So each new instrument that comes online adds to the capability and sensitivity and sort of direction finding of the entire network. Duncan Sargent. When the sun turns into a white dwarf, is it possible that a new planet could form around the sun remnant from the thrown off matter that forms the planetary nebula? You're not gonna get a new planet, right? So when a star like our sun dies, it's gonna expand as a red giant, it's gonna blow off a lot of its outer atmosphere, it's gonna shrink back down and become a white dwarf and then cool down to the background temperature of the universe. But, so you're not gonna get new planets forming out of that material. 
uh, from what I could tell. But you can get the planet settling into a new orbit. And so, you know, as the star gives off all that mass, that's going to change the, the orbital velocities of the various planets, and some are going to settle into new orbits especially that could be closer to the star. And so you could then have a planet that is orbiting within a new habitable zone around the white dwarf star, and then it's going to take billions of years to cool down. And so you could have really billions more years of time spent around your white dwarf star, and you'd be very close to it, uh, but you would be still getting warmth and you'd be able to have life on the planet. So there is a second chance, although you do need the orbital mechanics to work out to get your planets into another orbit under the new star to be able to successfully have life on it again. No name. Question, if I blow a huge anti-fart, will it smell anti-bad? Right, so if you're going to blow an anti-fart, right, that's going to be a fart that's made comprised of uh, antimatter versions of the methane. And so if a regular fart and an antimatter fart collided with each other, you would get a release of gamma radiation, which is like whenever any matter and antimatter comes together, you get gamma radiation, sort of pure energy. So really the only smell would be like your burning body and maybe your burning nostrils as this collision came together. And even a fart's worth of matter would generate an enormous explosion. So I do not recommend it. Master Pack. The Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old and at best will live a billion more before the sun eats it. The sun is roughly halfway through its life and the universe is only 13.8 billion years old. It took roughly two thirds of the universe's life to form our star and planet and then four fifths of the Earth's life to form us. The universe will then live on possibly trillions of trillions of years. We are at the end of the beginning of time, glancing at this. Our planet is but an old man within a universe that has barely been born. This really freaks me out, to be honest. It gets so much worse than that. The universe, as you said, is 13.8 billion years, but really the time of greatness in the universe was just a few billion years after the universe had formed, when the vast majority of star formation was happening. That's when the universe was a party. We're already 10 billion, 8 billion years too late for that really active time when you had the peak amount of activity in the universe. The, as you said, right, the sun is going to heat up and over the next half a billion years to a billion years, it's going to get, make the planet too hot and kill all life on the surface of the earth and boil away the oceans and all of that. And then the amount of future time you can't even comprehend. The age of the sun, the age of all the stars in the universe, even the age of the black holes will eventually, you know, pass and the universe will be expanding and the expansion will be accelerating and everything will be cold and dark forever. I apologize. It's, it's like such a long amount of time that we don't really have to worry about it unless we build robot bodies. And then if we do, then we'll figure out some way to compute and use up all the resources of the universe to last as long as we can. And then maybe we'll make a new universe and everything will be fine. So don't worry about it. Toxis, about the space station. So when they do that boost to keep their orbit, do they experience a second or so of gravity? And if yes, does everything fall down? Sort of. 
when they boost the space station's orbit, they don't fire the thrusters to push the space station up. They fire the thrusters to push the space station faster. And so they will experience a thrust where the space station is, is accelerating. And what that does is that boosts its orbit and ironically makes it go slower around the Earth, but it's at a higher orbit. And, and so everything that is inside the space station that isn't tied down experience this drift that comes back through the space station. And so I'm going to show you a video now, sort of a clip from astronaut Jeff Williams when he was on the International Space Station and recorded some video while one of these boosts was happening. And he showed you how you can see this acceleration with his camera. He just kept letting his camera go and then bringing it back. You can see sort of what they experience. It's not a lot, but it does happen. John Oddity. You're an arrogant fool if you think we are the only life around. In fact, that thinking we're the only life is the very peak of arrogance. It's a funny, it's a funny thing to say, I think, when people like astronomers, and even me, right? Like I have dedicated my life for the last last 20 years to trying to try to pull together and help understand and help explain our current understanding of the universe so far. And when you think about astronomers, say planetary astronomers or astrobiologists they have they have gone to school they've gone to university they've gotten their master's degree they've gotten their phd they've spent whatever 12 years 15 years trying to understand what life might look like on another planet and then they spend their entire professional career going after teeny tiny clues it's the same thing as archaeologists right to say to an archaeologist oh you're arrogant if you don't think that there's any dinosaurs out there or, or if there's any, uh, if there was any civilization in Mesopotamia before the Babylonians, all they do is dig, searching for ancient civilizations in Babylonia or whatever, right? And so to say that it's arrogant, I think all it comes down to is what does it take to convince you? What, what is the amount of proof that you require to know that something is true? So if you see a video that someone took and it has a little black object and it's kind of moving in the sky and the camera's jiggling around and the person goes, I don't know what that is. And then that's all there is. And if you say, look, well, that's it. That's an alien. It's a UFO. I'm convinced. Then, then that is the level of evidence that is required to convince you. But it doesn't convince me and it doesn't convince other people. But I don't think it's to say, I don't think it's arrogant to say, that just because we have different levels of evidence that we require to be convincing, I don't think that's the right way to describe it. It's literally just you require less evidence to be convinced of something. And I require more evidence, right? For me, a, hate, you know, a fuzzy video isn't enough. An eyewitness testimony from somebody that they saw something cool isn't enough. I want to see an alien hydrospanner. I want to see a piece of composite technology that just cannot be produced in any way, shape or form by the technologies that we have here on earth. I want, you know, something that tells me that we're not alone in the universe. And, and so I will continue to search and I will continue to look at the evidence and I'll continue to talk to scientists and I'll keep pushing for new methods and technologies to search the universe to find this stuff. And hopefully there will turn up evidence that will be convincing and then I will gladly accept it. I can't wait for that. So that's what it just comes down to. You and I have different standards for what we consider to be evidence of aliens, extraterrestrials, 
civilizations, things like that. Pip Lynch. Why do all stars and planets appear roughly the same size when looking in the night sky and not like larger or smaller than the sun and the moon? Right, so when you look up into the sky, you know, the moon obviously is this circle, right? It's a disc and don't look at the sun, but it's the same thing. And in fact, the sun and the moon are the same size in the sky. Now, when you look at planets with your eyeballs, the planet is too small. And so you see a point of light just in like you see a bright star. But if you use a telescope, then you can actually, you know, you can resolve the disk of that object. So you can see a, the disk of the planet in your telescope. Now, your eye is actually seeing that disk, but it's just so small. And the way you experience it is that the planets don't twinkle while stars do twinkle, although planets twinkle a little bit. And the, what's happening is, so you can imagine the planet, say Jupiter, has this tiny little disk in the sky and there's all these photons that are being reflected off Jupiter and they're coming towards you. And some of those photons are coming from the disk of the planet and on average, you're seeing this disk that's sort of, uh, Sort of, sort of moving around while with a star it's this point and that point through the, at the haze of the atmosphere can actually be jumping around and that's why you're seeing the star as a twinkle while you're seeing a planet is just this you know is less twinkly than than a star but it just takes a telescope it takes magnification to resolve the size of the object that you're looking at and with really really powerful telescopes like Hubble you can resolve the disk of big stars like Betelgeuse which is actually hundreds of light years away and in the future you can imagine even bigger telescopes being able to resolve the disks of stars that are even farther away so uh, it just comes down to the resolving power of your telescope and our eyes are terrible telescopes paulo rodrigo hey fraser love your channel the missions with cassini and juno were created specifically to study saturn and jupiter respectively can the next missions of exploration of the solar system still have the same function as Voyager 1 or 2, or were they only possible because of the alignment of the planets? Hey, Paulo, uh, I translated your comment from, uh, I think, Portuguese into English, and I hope I got it right. Uh, thanks, Google. Um, but, right, so when they set up the Voyager spacecraft, right, there was this special alignment of the planets. And as the mission planners were working on it, they knew that you could do a gravitational assist around Jupiter, go to Saturn, and then you could go from Saturn to Uranus to Neptune. And it's this alignment of all the planets that only happens every, I think, 180 years, some number, big number, more than 100 years. Um, and so it was just a complete fluke that we happened to develop space technology at the time when these planets were aligned in this way. And within our lifetimes, it'll never happen again. Uh, but, it, but it's kind of crazier than that, which is that when the mission planners sent the spacecraft out to the different planets, they actually had to make a choice. With Voyager 2, they said, okay, we're gonna go to Saturn, to Jupiter, to Uranus, to Neptune. With Voyager 1, when they sent it past Saturn, they could either go to Titan or they could go to Pluto. In other words, they could do a, a a planetary, you know, they could do a gravitational assist around Saturn and then skip out to Pluto, but then they wouldn't be able to get close to Titan. And since Titan is this amazing world with a thick atmosphere and it's gigantic and it has hydrocarbons in the atmosphere, it felt like it was the perfect target, one of the most interesting places to look in the solar system. And the irony is that Titan's haze obscured the view from the ground and so Voyager wasn't able to see anything but the clouds and it wasn't until Cassini showed up 
that they actually had a way to be able to look through those clouds and see the, the seas and lakes beneath it. We're really kind of at the end of the need for these big flyby missions like the Voyager spacecraft, right? There's like, unless we develop a better model of the solar system, thanks to say the LSST or other big telescopes, and we learn about all these other big objects out in the Kuiper belt, there's no need to send these flyby missions anymore. We're now in the time of specific missions to answer specific questions. You're going to be sending landers and rovers and orbiters and drills and helicopters and such to these worlds to learn more about them, uh, which is good, I think. Rockaway CCW, where is the best place on Mars to look for fossils? This is becoming a more and more important question as we're nearing the Mars 2020 rover, which is going to be going to Mars. And its job, right, it's a, it's a mobile astrobiology lab. It's going to be searching for evidence that there was the kind of minerals, prerequisites, organic materials on Mars that could have gone on to form life. Uh, so you're going to want to send the rover to the most likely place on Mars where you would find life. And so where are those places? Those are ancient, the, the, the beds of ancient lakes, seas, uh, rivers, things like that. Places where you had water for a long time, there could have been organic material in it, and then it settled down onto the floor and then built up in, in layers, and you would have fossils. And I have some of this stuff really close to my house, actually. Um, where I live right now here on Vancouver Island, we are in this place that was once this ancient ocean and we have these, these, this slate everywhere and you sort of pick up the slate and you sort of flake it apart and there's just, it's filled with fossils, little clamshells and uh, the teeth of um, uh, saber tooth salmon um, and sometimes these gigantic clams you can see sort of just the edge of this gigantic clam shell and, and things like that and and uh, ammonites and so uh, that's what you would be wanting to look into and then you'd want to do a microscopic look to see if you could see microscopic fossils so expect them to drop a, the rover somewhere that was once an ancient seabed or lake bed or riverbed and search for evidence of life there three dog 1963 not only is a go-to mountain nice for visual astronomy, it's a must for astrophotography. As far as cost, for a decent entry-level go-to, it's more than a couple hundred dollars. A decent mount alone is closer to $1,200. That has been my experience and hold back. I dropped $500 on a non-computerized mount and a six-inch reflector. The next step up is a major cost. That's exactly right. And I think what 3Dog here is saying, and this is sort of like the, the dark secret, is that once you get into astronomy, and if you really do love it, then like any hobby, it becomes this bottomless pit where you just throw money into it. And, and that's why I'm always recommending that people get a set of binoculars first, because a set of binoculars is the best first way that you're gonna jump from what you see with your eyeballs to what you see with a with essentially a telescope, right? Two telescopes. And that binocular vision, to see something with binoculars is, is much better than even just looking through one eyepiece, through one telescope. If you go out and you're learning your constellations and with your binoculars, you're looking at the moon and you're looking at Andromeda and you're looking at these star clusters and you're still enjoying yourself, then you're hooked and it's time to go to a telescope. And then when you go to the telescope, 
do you only want to do visual astronomy? And if you do, if you just want to go out like, oh, Saturn is up in the sky or oh, Jupiter's up in the sky, then you're going to want a light bucket, something like a Dobsonian. It's only going to be a few hundred dollars and it's going to give you, you know, it's going to be eight inches with the right kinds of, of components to it. You're going to be able to see the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and the bands across the planet and amazing shots of craters on the moon and some of the brighter uh, deep space objects out there. It's, it's very fulfilling to have that kind of a telescope, but it's a pain to get the objects lined up perfectly in the telescope. And so you're going to want to go. The next step is you're going to want to get some kind of motorized mount, but you're not going to want to drop down in the size of the optics. So you're going to want a telescope that's as big as the Dobsonian that you bought, but now you're going to want a, mo a motorized mount. And so you're going to probably want like an eight inch, uh, Richie Kretchen, um, like a eight inch Celestron on a motorized mount where you can just kind of beep boop and it'll take you to the different objects in the sky. That's gives you a much better view or the kind of the same view of these objects that I was talking about before, but now you've, you can just go from object to object and not have to try and line them up and stuff. And so it's just more civilized way to do it. Then you're going to want to put your camera onto your telescope and that's when you're hooked. And that's when it gets expensive. And as Three Dog is saying, you know, you want a really stable mount. My telescope mount probably weighs 80 pounds. It's 60 pounds. It's crazy how heavy that thing is. I can barely lug it around the house if I want to look at another object, but it is rock steady. The optics are not as important. And then when you hook your camera up to it, then you're going to want to be able to do these really long exposures of the night sky with a very fancy camera. And in fact, you're going to realize that the tracking on your telescope isn't good enough. So you're going to need a second telescope that's attached to your first telescope just to track objects and to tell the first telescope or to tell the mount where to point to produce these really long, beautiful exposures. And so, to really get into the hobby, if you want to do the kinds of astrophotography that shows the really cool nebulae and galaxies and deep space objects like that, you're probably going to want to spend two or three thousand dollars to get a nice piece of gear, and you could spend ten thousand or twenty thousand. So, uh, as any hobby <laughs> can start inexpensive, and then the more you get into it, the more expensive. I just really don't want people to spend that kind of money before they know that it's the hobby that they want to get into. Anton Vilmazny. Great episode. Really sad to see space movies being dominated by air-like combat. Star Wars, Star Trek. It would be cool to get more like Interstellar, Space Odyssey, more real, interesting, and inspiring ones. Yes and no, right? I mean, like Stargate is my favorite method of interstellar travel, right? Wouldn't it be great to just walk through a portal and appear of thousands of light years away. That would be awesome. So I think sometimes you have to, it's okay for the transportation system, the technology to not be realistic as long as the story is good and the action is good and, and the adventure is good. And you know, that's fine. Uh, if you're trying to be realistic, uh, that can help the story. And I think if you've been watching The Expanse, they had a, they had a great series of space battles and one sequence where 
the pilots were in this really high G racing vehicle and as this, they were changing the direction that they were going, they, they had the ability to change the position of the seats so that they could sort of spread the G-forces they were experiencing. And it was great, and I have never seen, and there's another scene in that same episode where essentially a toolbox has been left open, and so every time the ship changes direction, the tools go in a, you know, blast through the cabin like high-speed projectiles, and that was awesome. And I hadn't ever seen anybody come up with that scenario as a downside of being in a high G space battle. So, uh, so you can do both. It really comes down to, are you willing to do a good job to, does it add to the tension? Does it add to the story? But I like Star Wars and Star Trek as much as the next person. And I really like The Expanse and I really like The Martian and, and uh, well, people know that I have a bit of a aversion to 2001, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm looking through that. It freaked me out as a kid, okay? I was like six years old. People took me to go see 2001 and I couldn't sleep after it. It was just, it terrified me. And I haven't seen 2001 since then. So I really should. I'm sure it's not that scary. But you've got a movie like that, right? Don't we all have a movie that we saw as a kid when we were too young and it just freaked the pants off us? Nicole Suthar. That's my first question for you. The Hubble Space Telescope, I believe, is the most important telescope that human beings ever had until now. So my question is, that shouldn't human beings bring it down after its lifespan is completely over? Oh, Hubble. Uh, been with us for 28 years now, and it was this was originally the plan. Was it fit perfectly inside the space shuttle? It could launch to space, they could put the Hubble Space Telescope into the cargo bay of the space shuttle, bring it back down to Earth, they could service it, swap out parts, put on new instruments, send it back up on the next space shuttle and it could continue to, uh, to do its work. And then they realized it actually made more sense to just repair it while it was in orbit, that it was less risk, less expense, instead of bringing it back down and then launching it back up to just send people up to repair it. And so the question is like right now, there is no spacecraft capable of gathering up the Hubble Space Telescope and bringing it back to Earth. In theory, you could imagine a Falcon Heavy being able to do it, or maybe, but then a Falcon Heavy wouldn't be able to really return from orbit. So you really need the BFR. BFR could just go up, scoop it up, bring it back down to Earth. And then the question is, is that what you want to spend that money on? Or do you want to let it burn up and spend the money that would be spent retrieving the Hubble Space Telescope and spend it on some other mission, some new telescope? That's always the choice. You can kind of do anything, but you have a set amount of money. And the question is, do you want to do new science or do you want to make a museum a little better? And I think people want to spend more on the new science. All right, well, that's it. Thanks everyone for the questions. So again, just a reminder, go to the newsletter, universetoday.com newsletter. I will have instructions in there. So if you have a question and you wanna get a better chance of me answering it, uh, I will be needing questions to sort of kickstart what's going on in the newsletter. So, but I think you'll really enjoy my, my newsletter. I've been getting a great response from it. Um, so check that out, universetoday.com newsletter. All right, we'll see you next week.